0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Studio 2, the radio show that brings you a dynamic fusion of topics that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We Mm. are your hosts, Jerry Gregg and Avi Wolfman Aaron, and today we have an incredible lineup that will take you on a thrilling journey through the realms of ChatGPT, the fascinating discoveries at Avery's Rest Excavation Site, and of course, everyone's favorite day of the week, taco tuesday uh i mean, i don't mm. know that sounds like you had some help with chat gpt right oh there. how dare you accuse
1: me <laughs> of such things i'm not believing that one. <laughs> well we are going to be talking to a local professor who is using that technology in his classroom and we want to hear what you think about ai like chat gpt in education will it help or harm critical thinking I don't know if it helped or harmed that copy there, but it was you okay. Know, it was all right, all right. Or should we just lean all the way in and embrace it? The number for your question or comments is 888 477 9499. You can also email us at studio2 at whyy.org. That was
0: good, though. It was okay. The delivery was, was good. There would have been some red pen in there if I was uh, reviewing yeah, yeah, yeah. it. I mm-hmm. like dynamic fusion, though. Uh, that we was are, We that are going to get to all those topics today. I don't think <laughs> I need to repeat them. Yes, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about Taco Tuesday. Yes. We will talk about the Avery's Rest excavation site. But before we get to all of that, Sharon, we have some breaking news to attend to.
1: Yeah, Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw is resigning. Her last day will be September 22nd. The notice came today when Mayor Jim Kenney posted about it on X. Outlaw says her leaving is voluntary. She's moving on to become deputy chief security officer at the port authority of New York and New Jersey. And if you recall, I I know you remember the day Mm -hmm. uh, outlaw joined PPD back in February of 2020. She was the first black woman to lead the department and, um, You know, in a statement, Kenny said she has worked relentlessly for three and a half years during an unprecedented era in our city. And just as a reminder, a month after she got here, the city went on lockdown because of the pandemic. Three months after she got here, George Floyd protests broke out. I mean, there was the Walter Wallace shooting that October um, and we had her on the show just recently. Um, And things have been homicides have been trending down, shootings trending down. And then, of course, you know, the the shooting and killing of Eddie Irizarry. So a lot has happened during her tenure. By the way, uh, Mayor Jim Kinney has appointed First Deputy John Stanford Jr. Outlaw's top deputy as interim commissioner. Lots to talk about there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, look, the timing is conspicuous. We don't have any inside information, Mm -hmm. but a new mayor is coming Yeah. pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. Was a conversation had between... Her and some, I remember when you had her on the show, actually, you asked yeah, yeah. her whether she, you ha- she had talked with Sherelle Parker. Mm-hmm. And I think she said there were some rules that prohibited direct mm-hmm. communication, but just because there isn't direct communication doesn't mean there isn't indirect communication. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know. We don't know if this is because of the new mayor. Or maybe
1: she was just tired.
0: Maybe it was, she a decided, uh, maybe it she, was a lot. Maybe she really likes this opportunity at the Port Authority it is a, yeah, of New yeah. York and New Jersey. But, uh, we'll but obviously, the, the timing is is notable just as an outside observer. Um, And as you mentioned, an interesting event-filled three-and-a-half-year tenure. I was uh, looking back and seeing sort of three-and-a-half years as a tenure length. How does that fit in? It's on the short side. It's not outlier short, um, Mm -hmm. but it is on the short side Mm -hmm. for um, a PPD commissioner over the last 20 25 years. And
1: she came in at a tough time there had been a scandal sexual you know assault uh, yeah. allegations against the former commissioner so there there's you know it was a lot going on and um you know we wish her well.
0: Uh also on the show last week we had mm-hmm. on uh, Tony Watlington. Yeah, we were of, we were we were
1: hitting uh, on all cylinders <laughs> lately, right? <laughs> uh,
0: the uh, the new uh, Philadelphia school superintendent. This is his second year in mm-hmm. charge. And you you did I think or maybe I did one of us asked him yes. whether schools would be on delay as they get underway this week and they welcome children back. And mm-hmm. indeed. Uh, Seventy schools in the school district are doing first day. doing early dismissal on the first day and at least tomorrow because of the heat. These are schools in Philadelphia without air conditioning mm-hmm. um, and so this there 's a, there's a ma- massive heat wave right now, early September could be one of the bigger September heat waves we 've had here yeah. in Philadelphia. And so it's affecting schools, it's affecting everything about daily life, and uh, we will keep our eye on it. Yeah, what was interesting
1: to me about this is that we could have more above 90 degree days yes. in September than we had in August.
0: It was a cool August.
1: We yes. had a great, it was a great August, yeah. weather-wise. But of course, all the storms and rain and all that th- those things, but you know, um, I, I hate the kids are going to be, yeah. you know, having shorter days on the first week. Yeah. Don't I like was, that.
0: On my walk-in today, I actually passed by a school as parents were dropping off for the first time Mm -hmm. got a little misty eyed actually it's such a wonderful scene it really is but that (laughs) that, everyone was doing the pictures right with the with like Uh the brother and sister standing next to each other in the uniform um and but of course in the back of my mind thinking this is not a great way to start the school year Um, so the weather not cooperating and of course this is all tied into the infrastructure woes that the school district has experienced over many, many decades, mm-hmm. due in part to underfunding, and uh, the fact that many schools do not have air conditioning, of course, is related to yeah. all of that.
1: Yeah, and and speaking of schools, mm-hmm. um two Pennsylvania school districts announced that their buildings will be closed today. As a result, guess what this, of, of this, Avi, uh, ongoing manhunt you yeah. probably heard about. The escape uh, police, Pennsylvania State Police, they gave an update on a prison escapee in Chester County this morning. Thirty four year old Daniello Calvacante escaped from Chester County prison just outside of Philly on Thursday. He had been sentenced to life in prison without parole for stabbing 33 uh, year old Deborah Brandau to death in 2021 while her kids were present. He had been awaiting a transfer to a state facility when he escaped. Authorities say there had been six credible sightings since that time. Um in one sighting near Longwood Gardens, he had been seen wearing a hooded sweatshirt and a duffel bag, unknown where he got it, but yep. Westchester University had increased police presence. Everybody's very concerned, but authorities say they're closing in.
0: Yep, and this has become a national story. Yes. Actually. So, uh we will keep our eye on this one as well. Uh, hoping for a resolution sometime soon. Speaking of eyes, so eyes in the sky. This, <laughs> what, real quickly, wanted to talk about uh, uh, New Jersey being the first state to use drones to investigate suspected labor violations at construction sites. Really interesting story on this topic up right now at nj. dot com. Mm-hmm. Look, there are always reports of potential labor violations at these big, sprawling construction sites. It's hard to infiltrate them or show up and actually sort of gauge whether or not the violations are are occurring. So New Jersey has deployed some folks who know how to drive drones, fly drones, um, to use these drones from like 300 plus feet away to zoom in and monitor the sites and see if violations are occurring and perhaps... The fact that they are broadcasting this will be a deterrent for folks who might think about breaking labor laws.
1: Yeah, and they got folks on the payroll already, 12 folks, so we'll see what happens there moving on to our newsmaker staying in new jersey yeah in new jersey it's a david versus goliath story a south jersey restaurant beloved by locals has owned the trademark for taco tuesday today my favorite day of the week they've owned that trademark for over 40 years but now one of the biggest fast food chains in the world Well, they want it canceled. The trademark owned by Gregory's Restaurant and Bar in Summers Point, New Jersey, is the subject of a lawsuit filed by Taco Bell that will head to a federal patent court. And joining us now to talk about it is Gregory Gregory, the restaurant's third generation owner. Greg Gregory, welcome to Studio 2.
2: Why, thank you for the uh, welcome. And it was nice to hear you talking about our 45 years of Taco Tuesday.
0: 40, so and explain to folks, Greg, this is the first Taco Tuesday of the season because you run this promotion seasonally, right?
2: That That's correct. It, in the summer, it's way too busy. We're right next to Ocean City, New Jersey, and we have a very strong summer business that takes up too much time in our kitchen. And the Taco Tuesday is a promotion that we started in 79 to try and get some business on an off night. And now it's turned into a... A great night for us and a great night for the people. We offer it to the locals and to the travelers themselves, you know, the tourists. But it starts in the winter. It goes from now till the last week of June. And uh, it's Tuesdays. And we even have a rollover on Thursday for families.
1: Very nice. I want you to tell us a brief version of the 1979 story. You discovered tacos yourself and decided to create, quote, Taco Tuesday. Tell us the story.
2: Well, I was running a restaurant in the Philadelphia Gallery Shopping Center, and I went down to the food court to do some research to see what people were buying, you know, what people were eating, because I'm going to be making a menu for the family business I was taking over in January. So when I got to the food court, there was a place that had T-A-C-O written there. That's all it was on top of the, in the food court. And there was a line there every day, every day a line, every day a line. And mm-hmm. I said, I got to try this. So it's, all it said was T-A-C-O. So I go up to the lady and I said, I'll have a taco. <laughs> she, she, tells, she tells me it's taco. It's Tex-Mex. I said, oh, okay, I'll try one. I'm all excited. I take a bite. And it was, I, I just didn't like it. Oh. I didn't like it. But I'm in the business of serving food that people like, not what I like. Mm. And we, I wanted to put it on the menu. And in 1979, when we came down here, there weren't any Mexican places, so we had to figure out what we could do. And they said, let's do it one night a week. And I said, okay, well, why don't we do it on Tuesday, Taco Tuesday? We'll call it Taco Tuesday. Yeah, that, that sounds good. We'll call it Taco Tuesday. Wow. It got so busy. It got so busy that my college professor came in and insisted on helping us get a trademark for it. After some diligent work, we were uh, awarded our trademark in 1982.
0: And so you've had the trademark just in New Jersey, I believe, since 1989. That's correct. So you guys can use that phrase, Taco Tuesday, in New Jersey. Rival businesses
2: cannot. Absolutely correct.
1: And at some point there was uh, Taco John's, uh, which had the trademark in the other 49 states outside of New Jersey. And Taco Bell was, you know, going after both of you. And then Taco John's dropped out.
2: Yeah, quite a mystery.
0: Yeah, so you have no idea why Taco Bell wants to, I guess in their terms, liberate the trademark, which is basically make it so that anyone can use it. They've never told you, hey, Greg, this is why we want to do
2: it. Well, it's obvious. If anybody's been in business for five minutes, they know what's obvious. It's all about the money. They want to start a Taco Tuesday promotion for themselves. And, and understandably, I would, too, if I was uh, <laughs> I going to do it. But right now, I own it. We own the trademark, and that's all there is to it.
1: And so you have, I mean, you're a, a small business here in, in our region, and then you have big old worldwide Taco Bell. What keeps you in it and has, has your feet kind of grounded and say, you're going to fight this out? What, what's your motivating factor?
2: Well, to tell you the truth, you know, I have a I have a gentleman that stepped up a white knight that offered to protect me, help me and uh, make turn this into a little bit of a more fair fight. Hmm. And he's he's helping me out. I have an attorney, Scott Makeham, a local guy that I've known for years. And he said, listen, this isn't fair. I don't like this. I'm a David and Goliath guy. I, I'm a wrestler. <laughs> I, I, I want not do Got that, right a wrestler. that. I said, OK, let's do it. So we're in it to win it.
0: And I guess the question is, like, what would you really lose if indeed Taco Bell or any other business starts using it? Because you got a 40-year head start. Everyone loves your Taco Tuesday. If other people started using the phrase, would it really hurt your business?
2: Well, well, it is mine and it would hurt my business if the bar next door started Taco Tuesday or the taco stand down the street had Taco Tuesday. It's part of my business model. It's the the day that we use to pay our payroll the next day. It's so strong and we just it's it's ours. We own it. We pay.
1: And as we wrap up, you have less than 30 seconds. Tell us, what do you want Taco Bell? What do you want to say to Taco Bell? Big old Taco Bell.
2: I, I wish they would leave me alone or continue the talks and, and, and figure something out here. It's it's not right. It's not fair. And we're we're going to fight the fight.
0: That is uh, Greg Gregory, third generation owner of Gregory's Restaurant in Summers Point, New Jersey. They are the original trademark owner of Taco Tuesday, and they intend to keep it that way. Greg, thanks so much for joining us on Studio Two.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate the support.
0: Coming up next, chat GPT
1: at school. Email us your questions or comments at studio2 at WHYY.org. You can also call us at 888-477-9499. A little Jimmy Buffett here for you as we stick with us.
0: is Studio 2. I am Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Students are back in class. Alongside them, ChatGPT, mm-hmm. the artificial intelligence language program that debuted last November, at least for the public. Since then, teachers and students have been wrestling with what it means for education and learning. After all, Cherry, this bot, can write a term paper in just seconds, design a college course syllabus equally fast.
1: Cheating is a huge concern, especially since there's really no way to detect if an essay is chat GPT generated. So if you can't fight it, embrace it. That's what some (laughs) educators are doing. Resign to the idea that AI is here to stay. Pennsylvania of uh, University of Pennsylvania Wharton professor Ethan Malik is one of these teachers who is incorporating ChatGPT into his teaching and has been studying what it means for the future of education. He's here with us now in our studio. Ethan, welcome. Thanks for having me. And you can call us with your questions or comments. How do you think ChatGPT will change how students or your student learns? Yeah. Call us, 888 888- Four seven seven nine four nine nine. You can also email Studio Two at whyy.org. All
0: right, Ethan. Let's ground this in your teaching, your pedagogy. So, um, give me an example of a course that you teach because you require students to use ChatGPT in your courses. Give me an example of a course um, and
3: and what require ChatGPT actually entails in practice. Perfect. Well, I teach entrepreneurship at Wharton, which is a pretty uh, useful thing to be teaching in the era of chat. Not just because entrepreneurship is useful, but because it gives you flexibility. If Mm -hmm. I was trying to teach English composition or something, it would be a little bit harder, right? Mm Teaching people to write, but. Now I am able to make my students do a lot more than before, push things a lot further. So, for example, a typical assignment before ChatGPT, write an outline for a business plan you're going to put together. Mm -hmm. After ChatGPT, it now requires you to do at least one impossible thing in your outline. So if you couldn't code before, you have to write working computer apps. If you Mm. weren't able to do graphic design, I expect a full working website. Every assignment has to be critiqued by at least three famous entrepreneurs through history that you have to simulate with ChatGPT, which <laughs> might sound funny, but wow. actually is valuable because entrepreneurs need outside feedback and they don't get that enough. So these different perspectives are very helpful. Wait, so you, so you, so the
0: student tells ChatGPT, "I want you to critique my business plan in the voice of someone from the past."
3: So the AI is actually pretty good at simulating people. And so I have them simulate, you know, Jack Ma or Mm. uh, Rihanna or whoever they want and give them a critique in their voice about their plan. So Mm. just different perspectives. It's not going to be accurate, of course, but it's a way of getting different perspectives involved.
1: And so I I, want to just stop for a second because, Ethan, you've leaned all the way in, and, and I love it. But you were not always embracing this. You were a skeptic at first. What sort of flipped the switch in your mind to say, you know what? I shouldn't be afraid of this or worried about this. Instead, I should lean. I should. It caused have my students use it.
3: Oh, I'm both afraid and worried too. I <laughs> okay, just okay. Just to be yeah. clear. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the it, yeah. full set of things. Uh this is I mean, this is a very profound change, right? So I've actually been having my students use versions of earlier forms of large language models in AI before ChatGPT came out. And they would write comfortably at sort of a fifth grade level. So the idea was it was sort of a toy to show people, look, this is interesting. And I actually had students try and cheat uh, using AI both before and after ChatGPT. So they had to write an essay and have the AI fake an essay from them. Mm. Uh, and it was very obvious for the earlier versions, which was what I was skeptical about. So it didn't seem like this was getting anywhere very quickly. There's been lots of AI promises. And then Chat came out at the end of November, and suddenly it was like very clear, this is something very different right it aces every exam we throw at it it um, you know does beats every people on the sat gre board exam neurosurgery qualifying exam completely changes education okay wow.
0: so uh, let's just make sure that for folks who haven't used this before they understand how it works so my understanding of chat gpt is it's like a conversation you prompt it to give you something and then you can sort of Type a response back. No, I want this or I want that. I want you to tweak it. Give, give, give folks a sense of, of how ChatGPT, the platform that we have access
3: to, the version of it we have access to, actually works. Great. So, it's called a large language model and it sort of solves this problem of AI has been around for a while, but when we thought about AI, we either would think about the Terminator or we think about <laughs> mm-hmm. like large companies like Amazon trying to predict what what we want to might want to buy next, right? It was using like lots of data to predict stuff, but it was very bad at predicting language. So, large language models are this way of training AIs on everything humans have ever written and then they're able to produce realistic, natural-sounding language in response. And we kind of know how they work, but we don't know why they're working so well all of a sudden. So they've been around for a while, but ChatGPT, the size of the model that we have, and the version that you have for free is called GPT 3.5. The more advanced version is GPT 4. People can still get free access that using Microsoft's Bing Mm -hmm. in its purple creative mode. Um, But in either case, these models are very good and unexpectedly so. So all they're doing is kind of predicting the next word in a sentence, but they're doing it at a level that makes it almost feel like they're thinking. They're not. But we, we get that kind of quality. So it's not just reproducing text that's seen. It's not just copying and pasting, which is why, as you said, you can't detect its writing. It is actually creating new content based on everything it's been trained on. So you're interacting with it. You're typing a question and it answers you. You say, make that paragraph you know funnier. Make it f- It'll do that. Make it rhyme. It'll do that. These are all capabilities in the system.
0: It feels almost like a very advanced version of uh, when I go on Verizon and try to get like their cybersecurity chat bot help thing to help me with whatever problem I'm having with Verizon. It, the interface works like that, but it's a far more sophisticated version of it.
3: Exactly, and there's it's going to be coming to all kinds of other interfaces. So every version of Microsoft Word is going to have a button where you can actually have it just create your essay for you, which is going to make cheating that much harder. <laughs> every email you get will have an option to rep- reply with AI, and this is not like a future thing. This is already yeah. Microsoft already announced this. So it's not just going to be via chat. It's everything you do is going to have this generative AI built in.
1: If you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Ethan Malik, associate professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He studies and teaches innovation and entrepreneurship and has leaned all the way in and is actually embracing the use of chat, GBT, and other artificial intelligence. If you have questions or comment about use of GPT or other AI in education, Call 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at org. So I was teaching for a few years at uh, Temple University. And um, last semester, when I was teaching my journalism law class, I had a student submit some. And, and it was very hard to tell. Cause, but I could tell that her writing got exceptionally better from the beginning of the semester to the end. And I suspected that she used chat, GBT, or some type of assistance, I want you to kind of lay out how how young people are or students are using it in the classroom to assist. And is all of it just sort of writing the papers, or there, are there other uses
3: there? So there's a ton of uses, but we should start off with, like, everyone's cheating. I mean, they were already cheating, right? Everybody was already cheating. It just was... There were ways of detecting it or we ignored it. So it's just become much more obvious that everyone's cheating now. Mm-hmm. And it, these are not detectable. Once people use them, we have to do de- – like the essay as we know it is under threat. We have to think about new <laughs> ways of grading. Maybe we go back to yeah, blue yeah, books. Yeah. We can talk about all that. But it's not all downside, right? One of the most powerful things you can do as an instructor is one-on-one tutoring. We have all this research showing that if, you could, if I could do one-on-one tutoring with you, you increase like performance from like the 50th percentile to 98th percentile in the class. But, of course, that's really expensive, right? We can't do that as professors. We can't do that as teachers. There is some hope and signs already that AI is actually a pretty good one-on-one tutor. So my students have stopped raising their hands so much in class. And you ask them why, they're like, why would I want to tell everyone I don't know something when I can Mm. ask chat to explain that thing to me? So another thing I give my students is a series of prompts that actually make it work like a tutor. And so, it, so not just giving them answers, but asking them questions to understand what they know and challenging them to think differently. So it really creates new ways of teaching and learning, but it also challenges some of the ways that we're used to teaching. And if we don't adapt, a lot of the kinds of assignments we do aren't going to work anymore. So
1: ChadGBT can write your papers for you. It can tutor you. What else can it do in the classroom?
3: Oh, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, it creates, uh, like, if I want to create an interactive tool to explain statistics, it'll generate a web page for me with, mm-hmm. like, sliders and stuff so I can actually run experiments on it. It will do things like it works as virtual teammates. So my classes work in teams. I have it work as a coach to help teams work better together to solve problems. I use it, uh, I have students use it as a, t- you know, as a way of testing what they know and they, we actually ask them to explain things to chat and chat will suddenly get stuff wrong and they have to be a teacher themselves and correct the material that chat GPT comes up with. There's just a huge number of uses. It's a really fascinating technology. So it's an incredibly
0: powerful tool and you want your students to be able to harness its power and that's why you encourage them to, to use it on your assignments. Is that kind of in the ballpark?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of a couple cases, right? The first is exactly that. I want people to get to know how to use this. I think it's important. It's here, right? We could debate all we want whether it would be a good idea or not a good idea to have this, but we all have access to this tool. And by the way, you mentioned earlier, like, the most powerful tool we have access to. The fascinating thing is the most powerful tool that everyone has access to for free in 169 countries is the most powerful AI you can get anywhere. You go to the world's top Five Mm. companies, Mm. they have the same AI that you have access to, which is kind of crazy. So the first thing is this idea of using it. The second is I think it could really boost education. And the third is like this is the worst AI you're ever going to use. So Mm. my students need to be ready for a world where AI is going to get better and better. So they need to get better at sort of using the the correct types of prompts to
0: manipulate the chat GPT to give them what the the work product that they need because they're going to need to do that in their job someday.
3: Yes, although I have a feeling, based on where I'm seeing things go, that that's not going to be as much of a problem because the AI will kind of know what you want. Like You could just mm. sort of say, like, I'm in Ethan Moloch's class to help me get an A, oh, and gosh. it will give you all the information you need to do that, uh, or at least it will be able to soon. So I don't know how much this, this – I, I, the training is sort of getting used to the system. I don't know if we're going to be using it the same way a year or two from now. Well, that's kind of terrifying, though, isn't it? It is.
1: It is. And I, and I want to bring in a caller who also uh, works in education, is a college professor. Chase is on the line. He says, it's easy to detect what is ChatGPT and what is written by the student. Chase, you're on Studio 2 with your question or comment.
4: Hi, thank you. So I would just say briefly that it's actually quite easy to determine when ChatGPT writes a college paper. The reason is, is that ChatGPT surveys a field. Very few students understand a field. ChatGPT writes from the top down, like an encyclopedic entry, whereas students write from the bottom up. The particular thing that they're asked to write about is what they focus on. Also, the language is very clear to determine. It's very artificial. It, It is actually not... Um, very smart. Not yet. And I will just say one last thing, which is I had a group of 60 students. I had a paper last semester. I knew that they were using ChatGPT. I gave them a weekend to come to me, but I had already picked out 10 papers that use ChatGPT. Mm. 12 came to me. The 10 that I picked all confessed that they use ChatGPT. So it's not it's not as indeterminate to see it as people think. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much, Chase. Chase is like Inspector Gadget over there when it comes to ChatGPT. If you have a comment or you want to join the conversation, you can call 888-477-9499 or email studio2 at org. Ethan, I want you to react to that.
3: So I would say a few things. One is we're probably talking for this last semester, GPT 3.5, which is much weaker than GPT 4. The mm. second thing I would say is that when I assign students to use AI well, that means interact with it multiple times, like we were talking about, make this better, <laughs> make, add a different example to the second paragraph, it is indistinguishable. No AI detector can detect it. In fact, OpenAI just pulled their, OpenAI de- their AI detector from the market. They're the people who make ChatGPT because it doesn't detect writing. And the problem is it creates a lot of false positives, especially if English is your second language. You may be detected as writing like ChatGPT. So the thing I worry about is when professors are using their gut feel to figure out who's using chat and who isn't they're catching the bad chat users not necessarily all the chat users mm-hmm. and they may be going on signals that are false right so or it's out hard of date to, already exactly wow. so it's hard to police this kind of thing and I worry that policing it just means you're kind of picking people you think might be cheating and accusing them of cheating and we have no evidence of it so it's a really hard And that hard was to, one of the
1: reasons why I was afraid to even speak to to call out my student because you it's it was a hunch, but you have no proof.
3: And, and then the question is, are you calling out the other students who yeah, are better yeah. at using it? And now you, all you're doing is getting the people who aren't as good users. Mm-hmm. Is that is that fair? So it's a really big question, but cheating, is like, b- bad use is detectable. Good use, we've already proven, is not.
0: All right. Uh, if you want to join this conversation about chat GPT in the classroom, eight 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 four seven seven nine four nine nine is the number. The email address is studio2 at org. Speaking with... Ethan Mollick, professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Something of a chat GPT evangelist. I don't know if you like that particular term.
3: <laughs> I, 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 um, an evangelist of two minds. Like, I think this is here and we have to figure out how to use it, but I also think that there are reasons to be worried or upset or afraid as well.
0: Can we get into that? Because you gave the, the theoretical example of someone could just type in at some point to a, something like ChatGPT, help me get an A in Ethan's course, mm-hmm. and it could – Give them a roadmap, basically, to do so. And the point of doing an assignment in college is not necessarily to, to create the work product, but also to learn how to create the work product so that you can do things like it in the future. And if I'm just asking ChatGPT to get me an A, I, I don't
3: know how I would possibly learn anything in your course. We're going to have to change education. I mean, to to be very honest in the long term, this is why it's a very mixed message. I'm trying to evangelize the idea that we have to deal with this. This is not a future thing. The homework apocalypse is today. Like, we have to figure out how to deal with this. But that... We're going to have to change education. Now, education will be fine. We actually know the model that works, which is called the flipped classroom with active learning, which means you'll do a lot of tutoring and other sessions where you learn basic facts with chat help or video help outside of class. And Inside of class, will be activities, putting things to use. We'll be okay. We'll figure all of that out. Mm -hmm. Some classes, like English writing, will ban chat, and you'll do a lot of writing in class, and there just won't be as many out-of-class assignments. We'll, We'll figure that stuff out. I'm more profoundly kind of concerned about what we do what we're training people for, right? Mm. I'm in a business school. What does the world of work look like when yep. AI does a pretty good job writing marketing material or does a good job writing code? What does that look like for yeah, years Yeah, because
0: if I was a super creative person and my great asset to my employer was, I'm great at writing marketing emails and, and I could do it pretty quickly compared to the average human. Well, now I can't because chat GPT or some later
3: version of is going to blow me out of the water, right? And, and in ways we don't expect. So my uh, colleagues, uh, Carl Ulrich and Christian Turwich, just did a paper where they compared, They have a, they have a canonically amazing Product design course that they teach, or one of them actually wrote the book on product uh, design. And they compared the st- ideas that students came up with in the class with the ideas that ChatGPT came up with. And ChatGPT came up with better ideas than the students, oh. right? Oh Out God. of the top 10 ideas, most were from Chat. And,
1: and I want to bring in our, another caller, another teacher. Kathy's on the line, wants to join the conversation. And then I have a question for you that I'm sure will piggyback on what Kathy has to say. Kathy, you're on Studio Two. What's your question or comment?
4: Yeah, my comment is: um, I was a teacher for um, many years, uh, all ages, uh, elementary school through adult. I have a master's in education. What I always taught my students was that in order to be a good writer, um, you it forces you to clarify your thoughts um, and. If you're taking away that opportunity for those students of practicing and practicing and refining and refining and really figuring out what it is they want to say in the best way they can say it, you're stealing that opportunity from those students, mm. including um, coming up with their own original ideas.
1: Thank you so much, That's Kathy. And my follow up question is right in line with what Kathy uh, had to say. Does it make us less smart. I mean, because <laughs> right, right. because you're 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 relying heavily. You haven't fleshed it out. You can't. You, your critical thinking skills are going to be questionable. What is some of the downsides of, of producing kids from Wharton School that haven't really gone through that process?
3: We we don't want to give that up, right? I think uh, Kathy was completely right. Like we. we... Part of how we learn to write is we write a lot, right? Part of how we come with good ideas is we have to generate ideas. And the good thing about school is we can create a space for that to happen. That means some classes will ban Chat GPT, some classes will embrace it, as I said at the beginning. Entrepreneurship class, I have a different goal than I might if I was teaching, you know, how to have basic reading and writing skills. On the other hand, I think this is a general problem that we're all gonna be facing, which is there, there is this phenomenon that, you know, once we start using AI of call, called falling asleep at the wheel, where we stop paying attention because the AI looks good enough, even if it's making mistakes, mm-hmm. it looks like the material is good enough and right enough. So we're going to be very careful as teachers. But we also can't be blind to the fact that if we just assign essays, that those essays are not going to be written by most people. So it means taking an active decision about whether you're using this in your class or not. If you're not, how are you enforcing not using it? Because you can't just use gut feel or detector. If you are using it, how are you using it to enhance learning? So there's a lot lost and a lot gained, um, but it's it's already happening, right? So it's not like a thing we can wait on. So how
0: would you advise someone who's teaching English composition, or perhaps let's move it down uh, sort of the continuum to someone who's teaching middle school English, um, how would you advise them about using something like ChatGPT? Because as Kathy stated, like the process of learning how to write and generate ideas through writing is Helpful for a human being's development, and you don't want to lose that.
3: So, if you suspect that cheating is going to be a real issue, you're going to have to do a lot of the writing in class and offer critiques and other, you know, do it sort of roundtable rather than as homework assignments as they come. So, a lot more By hand. in class. Well, does it? I mean, you could you know turn off Wi-Fi for mm-hmm. districts that have Chromebooks, right? Do it by hand if we need to do it that way. I mean, there are there that is one way to handle it, yeah. right? Outside of class, you might use ChatGPT to actually help increase the learning output. So rather than writing their essays outside of class, maybe they'll use prompts that'll help give them feedback from different angles. Maybe you'll ask them to rewrite their essays in six or seven different styles and critique them. Maybe you'll ask them to have ChatGPT write an essay and talk about how they'd improve it. So there are ways of integrating this into the learning experience while still maintaining some of what we have but it requires change we can't just do things the same way we have a people want to talk to you
1: uh ethan we have another caller gerhard uh wants to talk about the future welcome to studio two what's your question or comment
4: Hi. Well, I got a, I have a major question and I have a very minor comment. The minor comment is there's something called GPT-0 apparently that can statistically help detect a lot of uh, chat GPT users. The major question is, um, given what's happened uh, in terms of uh, chess and uh, uh, Go, mm-hmm. you know, like AlphaGo, uh, do you see that over the next maybe five to ten years knowledge work or large chunks of knowledge work will become uh, uh, basically devalued, if not irrelevant, because the AI will just be better than all the rest of us, or most of the rest
1: of us. Interesting. And thank you so much, yeah. Gerhard. What do you think about that?
3: Okay, so my first thing on ChatGPT 0 we actually now have academic papers. These don't work. The detectors don't work. Do mm-hmm. not use them. Again, false positives against people. It accuses people who- As of now, don't, they don't work. They will never work. They will never work. Yes. we We know they're not going to work. Okay. Right. Um, at least as far as we can tell right now, every paper shows it's not happening. The people who actually build the models have pulled them off the market. Do not trust ChatGPT zero or any of these other methods. We we actually know that there's papers showing that these don't work. Mm-hmm. Right. High f- high mistakes. The second thing I would uh, is the, on the bigger question. That is the big question. Right. Mm-hmm. We already have early research that shows that. In real work tasks, AI decreases the amount of time to do you know, high-end, white-collar analytical work tasks by 30 to 80% and ends up with better results. And that's programming, marketing, writing. Like, there's, We have controlled studies that show this. What does that mean is the question we're all going to be grappling with for the years to come. Does that mean that we get to move on to do more interesting work because our boring work is outsourced to AI? Does it mean that it, it devalues some of these jobs that used to be very valuable? There's a a whole bunch of studies now that look at where generative AI is going to have the largest impact. That means not necessarily replacing jobs, but overlapping with them. It's going to overlap most with the most creative, highly paid, highly educated jobs, and so that's something we'll have to address. And I have
1: a I have to push back a little bit because ethics. You know, I taught ethics, journalism, law, and ethics, and I'm thinking about some of the unethical uses that could possibly be here. We're already seeing people talk about bias. We're always seeing people talk about misuse of intellectual property. Um, I mean, there has to – are these going to be fixed or are we just going to mow over some of these ethical issues as this technology moves forward?
3: So I think those are really good questions, right? But There's bias in all sorts of levels, bias in how the models uh, output things, right? There's subtle gender biases in how they produce content uh, that's already been documented. There's biases in what data they're trained on. They're mostly trained on easily accessible data that is – From, you know, from in English, right, from Wikipedia and other sources, there are issues, like you said, of IP. No one's asked for permission. And Mm -hmm. there's pirated copies of books in the training material. There is a lot of questions, right? So part of the question is deciding whether or not how you feel about that. How do we teach our students to be critical about AI and use AI as part of the workload here? But it's all happening very fast. I can't tell you whether it's going to stop. I don't Mm. think so. There certainly seems to be no indication that the major AI studios are going to stop, AI labs are going to stop building AI. So I'm, I'm sort of a pragmatist here, which is we have to address the negatives, and there's a lot of them, figure out what the positives are, and figure out how do we teach students in a new world, that we didn't necessarily ask for, uh, that has some upsides, but is here.
0: Just want to end with a quick comment. No response needed here, Ethan. But Angela emailed and said uh, that using the prompts through ChatGPT has helped her own elementary school age child um, ask better questions and that's a valuable skill to develop so there are positives there are negatives and there are a lot of unknowns this was a fascinating conversation excellent yeah. Ethan Mollick is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School using ChatGPT GPT uh, quite actively in his classroom this semester and many to come Ethan really appreciate the time thank you and coming up, new details about
1: early settlers at Avery's Rest near Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Something no one expected to find. Looking forward to that discussion.
0: From the future to
1: the past, just like that. From the like future that. to the past, Avi, you got it. <laughs>
0: I'm Avi wolfman Aaron.
1: And I am Cherry Gregg. A decade ago, archaeologists in Delaware discovered an unmarked burial site with 11 skeletons of European and African descent near Rehoboth Beach, dating back to the 17th century. The site is known as Avery's Rest, named after the early colonial era landowner John Avery.
0: But initially, Cherry, we didn't know a lot about who these 11 people were until now. Using DNA analysis, researchers have learned a lot about these people, the tough lives they lived trying to survive in the early colonial days. Raquel Fleskis is an anthropological geneticist who did this study and joins us now to tell us more about it. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. We're excited to have you. So you all have been researching the DNA from the ancestral remains found in Delaware, and there was a report that was published over the summer. What were those discoveries that were made and why are they so significant?
5: Yeah, so our research that just came out a few months ago in the publication Current Biology looked at are the whole genomes of these 11 ancestral individuals that were found at Avery's Rest. So when I say whole genomes, we're talking our 23 chromosomes, our sex autosomes, and we can look at these DNA data to tell us things like our ancestry or origins, where we come from, biological sex, and also biological relatedness. So with the Avery's Rest individuals, we looked for first ancestry. We found that eight individuals were of European descent and three individuals were of African descent. And what's interesting is that they're separated by 15 to 20 feet apart. So we have a group of eight in the south and a group of three in the north. But really interestingly, what we found is that we have biological kin structures in between each of these different burial groupings. We found a grandmother, mother, and an infant child of European descent, and a father and a son of African descent. Um, And this is really important because it shows us and documents the visibility of biological family in early colonial settlements. A lot of times we're thinking about young male migrant labor coming to the colonial, colonial North American landscapes and also enslaved African individuals being forcibly brought to these landscapes. So here we're actually thinking more about, well, what was life like for these individuals? What is the role of family? What is the role of women and children here at Avery's Rest?
0: So the fact that these groups of people were separate, but near each other in terms of where they were buried, uh, why is that significant? What might it be telling us?
5: Yeah, I mean, it was really unexpected. Um, Usually what we see is that books of European and African descent are usually interred in completely separate burial spaces, usually following things like antebellum period down in in, uh, the south of the United States. But here at Avery's Rest, they're separated only 15 to 20 feet apart, and we attribute this to being in a very uh, frontier landscape it's a very rural location. There are not a lot of people in this area. So what we're seeing here at Avery's Rest is more of an experience of, of living in these frontier locales where folks are having to work on the same plantation site in order to grow food, to survive, and also to just kind of, uh, live in these really sparsely located areas.
1: And so, um, how did, did the ancestral remains tell you anything about how these individuals lived um, and how old they were just sort of and how they died? Like what did the, the bones tell you about their life?
5: Yeah, so this work, uh, the study of the bones, we also call this osteology, was conducted by the Smithsonian Institution. So they can look at bones to be able to tell age, so what time, what how old they were when they passed away. We see that most people at Avery's Rest are in their mid-30s. One woman was about 50 to 60 years old, so she was really, really old, which is mm. pretty unusual for this time period. Um, We can also look at the bones for lived experience. So, you know, how much work are they doing in their lives? We know from Avery's Rest, the study of their bones, that they have very robust bones. They're doing a lot of heavy labor. Um, We see when we study their vertebrae, so this is your spinal column, you get impressions in the vertebral body and those impressions come from doing a lot of loading on top of the spine. Now what's unique here too is that we see that these vertebral loadings and these robust bones are found both for the individuals of European descent and the individuals of African descent. So what this again is going back to is this frontier experience where everybody is having to do a lot of labor. However, what we don't know is the allocation of that labor, which was likely in law along racial and enslavement boundaries.
0: Right, and so this this larger narrative or theme emerges um... Of at least on some level, people living among each other, working with each other in this particular part of Delaware at this particular time. Did we have any sense that that was possible or happening before this particular site was excavated? Or is that like completely new to us?
5: Well, in terms of of Avery's rest, um, knowing that there were persons of African descent found there was completely new Hmm. until the burials were fully excavated. We know from archival documents that the site was occupied by John Avery and his family and likely some tenant farmers and indentured servants. But, you know, we know that for persons of African descent, there were supposed to be less than 500 persons there in Delaware by 1700. So it was really unexpected to find three individuals of African descent at Avery's Rest. So Mm -hmm. it adds a completely different dimension on what this frontier rural life was like in, in 17th century Delaware.
1: Yeah. I think about how technology has changed over, you know, the past years and what this DNA um, technology allows you to be able to do as far as like tracing um, these specifically uh, uh, folks of African descent back to where they're from. What did it tell you about where they were brought from and uh, as far and tell you about the slave trade itself when it comes to Delaware?
5: Yeah, that's a great question. So what we would do is basically analyze the DNA of these ancestors and compare them to contemporary populations across the world. And that way we can infer origins or ancestry, right? What we found for the individuals of African descent at Avery's Rest is that they're coming from very different areas. Mm -hmm. So we have signatures for West Central Africa, as well as the upper Gold Coast and kind of more upper Africa. And what's interesting is that the father and the son, the child has a very different uh, kind of profile than the father. And this suggests that that child's mother, who was not found at the site, was coming from a different area than the father is. So what this paints for us is that This is a very, very beginning of the transatlantic slave trade for the kind of eastern part of North America. We don't really have very good records about who these people were, where they were brought from. So what this shows us is that it's pretty, you know, uh, it's pretty wide. And and we really just don't have a good understanding other than, you know, they're kind of being brought from uh, from all over.
0: Hmm. You mentioned uh, records there, uh, Raquel, about a minute left. I would imagine that, you know, the anthropological field, the historical field for a long time uh, were very much beholden to what was written down. Now you have these new tools that allow you to go beyond what was written and find and prove new things that may have been written out of history. How is your field changing as a result of this new technology?
5: Yeah, so I think, you know, our field is learning how to work with and work beyond these archival documents. You know, archival documents oftentimes will write the history of often white male settlers. And it's really difficult to see beyond those lines in terms of what was life like for women and children and folks of African descent. So when we use DNA technology um, to kind of look at these histories that are often not written about, we can learn so much more about this past that, you know, forms our roots for this, this area here we see you know histories of relatedness um, we see origins and in, in terms of things that we didn't we didn't know before so it's learning to work with but also beyond um, to kind of expand these narratives
0: that is Raquel Fleskis, an anthropological geneticist at Dartmouth University talking about the fascinating discoveries at Avery's rest Raquel thank you so much for the time on studio two
1: thank you so much couldn't believe all of that near Rehoboth
0: Beach. It's amazing what lies Delaware. right below the surface sometimes. Yeah. And
1: that wraps up our show. For today, our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks engineered today's show. For more Studio 2, you can head on over to whyy.org Studio 2 or download us wherever you get your pods. And please rate and review. Rate and review.
0: From Studio 2 and WHY in Philia, I'm Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erendt.